good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. This is Mike Friedenberg, one of the rotating hosts for World News Brief, and uh, you're joining me for part 3.5 of our post-election analysis. I've been calling it a post-mortem analysis in some cases, but since I think you know the body is still uh, alive, we have a, a bare majority in Congress, I guess I'll call it a post-election analysis. Part three, we talked about just how successful the 20 uh, folks that uh, held out against the McCarthy speakership were in negotiating a few key things. I think there was probably many more that were done prior to even the election starting. But what I want to talk about in this cycle, and what I think is very significant, is the new rules going into effect. These rules are night and day. Uh, these House rules are night and day from the rules under which we've been operating since Pelosi took over the speakership in 2018. So that's what we're going to discuss today. It's it's There's some detail to it, but I think you will find them to be exciting and encouraging. So I'm going to go through them because they're they're really well worth knowing. And the devil really is in the details. These rules are significant. And they make a difference in how the House will be run and what kind of legislation will be coming out of it and what kind of legislation will not be coming out of it. As we go into this, know that I'm like many of you, uh, very, very frustrated with the Republican Party. In fact, um, I often feel the only thing worse than a Republican in office is a Democrat. The only thing worse than Republican control is Democrat control. And sometimes you think, is there really any difference? Well, as we go through these rules and how they differ from what the Democrats have in place, I think you will see that there is really, really big differences. And it's important to remember that. We're, we're getting nothing, nothing like perfection. We have people like Mitch McConnell. We have other people out there that... You know, they got elected to be somebody and they really are concerned about what the media says and what their friends in the country club says or the elite set of folks they hang out with. But there are people in the House, there's people locally elected that do care about the country and do try to put the interests of the country first. We do have some of those people in Congress. I don't know what the percentage is, but we definitely have some of those kind of folks in Congress. So with this set of rules I'm going to describe in detail, there is some optimism, well, there's room for optimism that things can be different going forward. Obviously, if Kevin McCarthy and other leadership up there just works to undercut these rules now that they've said they're going to use them, then we're not going to get anywhere. But I'm going to go ahead and, and have the hope that Kevin McCarthy will actually use these rules and will realize that if he wants to do better in the 2024 elections, the Republican Party needs to be doing things differently. So what we'll be talking about are the rules for the 118th Congress. For the last four years or so, the House has been operating under the rules put in place by Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Without further ado, let's plunge in. Section 1 is extremely Short. In fact, I'm going to read the entire section here. This section provides that the rules of the 117th Congress are the rules of the 118th Congress 
except for the amendments contained in section two of the resolution and orders contained in the resolution. In section two, we have changes to the standing rules on initiatives to reduce spending and approve accountability. This section, which I talked about in part three briefly, replaces current pay as you go requirements with cut as you go requirements. So it prohibits the consideration of a bill or a joint resolution, a conference report or an amendment that has the net effect of increasing mandatory spending within a five to 10 year budget window. This is significant. You know, you sometimes you see bills put in place that they look good the first year or two years, but then they really, really kick in with big spending in years three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. This would prevent that. Unless the rules are changed, this is going to be followed. In the same section, subsection A2, we have the repeal of the Gephardt rule. And that was the rule that was passed so that the Congress didn't have to go through the pain of publicly raising the debt ceiling. What it did is it, the House would pass a budget, and whatever amount the budget of the House was that exceeded the current debt limit, then the debt limit would automatically be raised to cover the budget. Members of Congress would just pass the budget, and they weren't held accountable for raising the debt limit, even though they really were raising it. It wasn't done. It was sort of hidden inside a rule called the Gephardt Rule. So that is a major advance. That's something we should be excited about because now we're going to have to have separate votes on raising the debt ceiling. And that is probably the one tool left, the one real significant tool left in the Republicans' toolbox that they can use over the next year. The ability to control the purse strings was destroyed by Mitch McConnell, who clearly did not want a House that had conservative influence in it having anything to do with the budget over the next year. Section two also restores point of order provisions that prohibit, that will effectively prohibit adding more costs on the House floor. If it's not approved and comes out of the, the, the various committees, then just trying to add amendments on the floor will be subject to point of orders. Chair, point of order, this violates the House rules. Therefore, we cannot consider this amendment to increase spending. Those are included now in the new House rules. Great stuff. Section two of the new rules also restores the three-fifths majority required to raise rates on taxes. It had been changed years ago back to a simple majority. Now it's a three-fifths majority. It cannot be emphasized enough how important getting to the three-fifths majority versus the simple majority is. With the House divided the way it is, 222 to 213, all the Democrats would have to do is pick off a few Republicans in vulnerable districts on legislation that appeals to a more moderate or liberal crowd. And all of a sudden, you have the Democrats passing legislation out of the House to a friendly Senate and on to be signed by Joe Biden. But with a three-fifths majority, you have to pick up about 20 Republican votes. So much, much harder. The other uh, advantage to it is that there are some Republicans that are in districts that aren't exactly optimal for MAGA or real conservative candidates to run in. And in certain limited situations, Kevin McCarthy and other House leadership 
could allow Republicans to vote for some things that they know aren't going to get passed out of the House anyway, so that when they run for re-election, they can at least point to that. I know that that's not necessarily all that appealing, but you have to do these types of things if you want to maintain a majority. Not every district is going to be a district that a solid conservative can win. The three-fifths majority puts a really nice set of guardrails on what can come out of the House when you have such a narrow majority. Actually, most of the rules, the changes in the rules, appear to act as safeguards or guardrails to making sure that the process is kept under control and that no small rogue element of Republicans can all of a sudden start dealing with the Democrats. That's not all it does, but that certainly is an aspect of it that is very important. Section two also restores the provision requiring at least 72 hours before a vote can be made on a bill. If, as we've been seeing, these bills have been coming out of these trillion dollar bills have been coming out of these committees, and I guess particularly the, um, the Rules Committee and, and members of the House have only had 48 hours, sometimes less, to try to consider thousands of pages of legislation. 72 hours is a little better. Hopefully they'll do better than that, but at least that is now restored to what it once was. So I will call that good news. This next change gets a little bit into the weeds, but essentially the way it works is committees now have to review all the spending they are responsible to oversee. I will read directly from the summary of these new changes because it's a little complex. Um, so subsection restores the requirement that each standing committee, except for the Appropriations, Ethics and Rules Committee, vote to adopt an authorization and oversight plan, which must be submitted to the Committees on Oversight and Accountability and House Administration no later than March 1st of this year. The plan must include a list of unauthorized programs and agencies within the committee's jurisdiction that have received funding in the prior fiscal year or in the case of a permanent authorization, have not received a comprehensive review by the committee in the prior three Congresses. So the subsection requires committees to describe each program or agency that is intended to be authorized in the current Congress, next Congress, and a description of the oversight to support reauthorization in the current Congress. It also requires that the plan include any recommendations for moving such programs or agencies from mandatory to discretionary. So, the goal here is to get as many programs out of mandatory spending into discretionary. And when developing these plans, committee chairs must coordinate with other committees of jurisdiction to ensure that the programs and agencies are subject to routine authorization efforts. Summarizing what this means is rather than just uh, doing what you did last year, you have to justify the existence of the spending programs and then explicitly vote to continue to do them and also work to try to reduce them by moving them from being uh, mandatory to discretionary, if at all possible, which gives more flexibility in the future to potentially cut them or remove them entirely. Same section, a subsection in the big sub, in the big section, also provides that committee 
authorization and oversight plans may make recommendations to consolidate or terminate duplicative or unnecessary programs and agencies. They may make recommendations to change existing law and that address federal rules, regulations, statutes, and court decisions related to the programs that are inconsistent with Congress's Article I authorities, as well as provide a description of other oversight activities that may be necessary. Bottom line is they'll be taking a close look at programs, what can, what can be removed, which programs stand in violation of Article I and the duties in Article I that are delegated to the House. So, for example, if a federal agency is effectively administratively creating taxes, they could say, hey, this violates Article One. You can't do that anymore. There's a whole bunch of things related to this. And if they were really to start going after Article One violations, that would make a huge difference. So good news there. The next subsection I'm going to briefly describe is subsection F. And this restores the requirement that the Congressional Budget Office and Joint Committee on Taxation, to the extent practicable, incorporate the macroeconomic effects of major legislation into the official cost estimates used for enforcing the budget resolution and other rules of the House. So this subsection requires a qualitative assessment of the long-term budgetary and macroeconomic effects of major legislation which is defined to cover legislation that causes a gross budgetary effect in any fiscal year covered by the budget resolution that is greater or, or equal to 0.25%. This is significant. If they have to do this, then they're gonna be talking about costs and it's gonna be harder to just to pass things willy-nilly. So once again, this is a significant change that we should be very, very happy about. On the ethics side of things, nothing earth shattering, but they do continue the rule that if you are found guilty of sexual harassment, you have to pay whatever damages that come out of that out of your own pocket. You just don't have the taxpayers pay for it like we used to have it done. Another change that is completely different from how things were done in the previous Congress, votes taken in the powerful House Rules Committee will now have to be recorded so members will be accountable for their votes. That's a nice change as well. And at the very end of Section 2, we have that probably most famous provision that was negotiated for, and that is a subsection Q, and that strikes language from Section 9 that had taken away the ability of a single member of the House to move to vacate the Speaker's chair. Under Nancy Pelosi, that had been replaced by a majority of the people in her party would need to advance a resolution to have her removed from the chair. So that was uh, one of the things that the, uh, the 20 fought for and that they got. So very significant. Now we're moving on to Section 3 of the House Rules. Well, this reinstates the Holman Rule, which allows amendments to appropriations legislation that would reduce the salary of or fire specific federal employees or cut a specific program. Wow, that's important. And um, anyway, that, that's great. And they can cut a, pro a program or they can get rid of a bad employee. Awesome.
Section 3 also restores the requirement that a bill be on a single subject or topic, rather than having these giant omnibus bills where you put everything into it. And if you vote against it, you're probably voting against something that you really want and vice versa. So this is significant, very, very significant. It's worth noting that many of the establishment types on both sides of the aisle, the Democrats and the Republicans, liked these big omnibus bills. However, the conservatives prevailed in this, and that's a win. Subsection E1B allows committee chairmen to take into account baseline budgeting issues. And what that means is rather than just saying, hey, last year's budget was $50 billion and we're going to raise it by 10 percent, is they're going to sit there and say, hey, what are the real costs in each of these departments? Now, that takes a lot of effort. But if you do some baselining, you may find that you have a whole bunch of things happening in a budget that you don't really need. So the fact that it's even mentioned there is good news. How much it will effectively be used, that's maybe up to the, um, the individual committee chairs and the will of the House to really fight some tough battles. But at least it's in there. There are a number of other provisions in Section 3, um, a lot of actually provisions. I'm not going to cover them all. But I will mention a couple of key ones. One is that if the government sells a major piece of property, it cannot use the sale of that property to, which is, you know, a temporary infusion of money to engage in long-term commitments based upon the one-time revenues from that sale. The other thing that is significant is it, it directs the committee, the January 6th committee, to give the documents over to the Committee on House Administration. And that has already been done. And we've been hearing talk in the news about the videotape of January 6th being released. There is a section four, and of interest to me in that section is that a subcommittee will be established looking at the government response to the coronavirus pandemic. It's going to look at pretty much everything having to do with the pandemic. But one thing of interest is that it is definitely going to be looking into the government funding of gain of function research and how that all came about. Section five deals with the legislative agenda of the uh, Congress, energy independence, no taxpayer funded abortions, support for law enforcement, things of that nature that the Congress theoretically will be voting on, and hopefully the House will be, the House Republicans will be united in getting these things passed. Of course, they have zero chance of being passed by the Senate and signed by Biden, but at least we'll know who voted for and who voted against these bills. So that pretty much summarizes what happened. A lot of really good things happened in the rule changes. It was definitely significant. And with that said, that concludes my analysis for today. Thank you for joining me. And until next time, live long and prosper.